Well, I'm done. <laughs> I mean, if that don't get you fired up, I don't know what will. Um, <clears throat> my name is Ed. I'm one of our pastors here at my church, and it's the second week in a row. The, this week was by design. Jeff is in, uh, and Christy are in uh, out of town with their youngest son. He's in the state wrestling tournament, uh, so he was struggling about it, but we said, go be with your kids. I mean, I got a 20 and 23-year-old, and those kind of things don't come along too often, and we were like, go, and he said, but I wasn't here last week. Well, you were throwing up all over the house last week, so that will give you a pass on that. So you got me for one more week, and I want to, <clears throat> you know, my son, my, my oldest son, Zach's 23 now, when he was six or seven years old, <clears throat> he was outside flying a kite. And, uh, and a low drifting clouds kind of encircled the kite so you couldn't see the kite. And Mr. Tom, retired colonel, lives across the street, cool guy, um, walked out. So he was walking in his front yard, and he came over there to Zach, and he said, you know, what you doing with that string in your hand? And Zach said, I'm flying a kite. Mr. Tom looked up, and he saw the clouds, and he said, little man, I don't see a kite up there anywhere. And Zach said, I don't see it either but I know it's up there because every once in a while I feel a tug on my string. And that story makes me think about, about faith and about my faith. And, and I know often appearing sometimes foolish to all of my sophisticated you know, friends in this sophisticated world, I still trust God and I still keep looking up. And every once in a while I feel a little tug too. And so this morning I want to talk to you all, have a conversation about faith and every one of us, in fact, everybody on the planet has got faith in stuff. Um, when you got up this morning, you walked in the bathroom, you flipped the light switch, you had faith that light was going to come on. When you uh, went outside in the driveway, you got in the car, put the key in the ignition, you had faith, I hope you had faith, that your car was going to start. Um, you know, when you email somebody, uh, you have faith at Google or Yahoo, probably not AOL, but Google or Yahoo is going to get that, I'm not hating on AOL, Google or Yahoo is going to get that message on to where it needs to go. And from a spiritual perspective, everybody places their faith in something or someone as well. The Muslim places his faith in Muhammad or the Quran. The, 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 the humanist places his faith in, him, in himself. Um, the religious guys, the religious folks, place their faith in all of the works that they do. The naturalist places his faith in maybe in the cosmos. And the problem is that none of those things can save. All of those things are wrong because the object of their faith is wrong. Acts 4.12 says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And your faith is only as good as the object to which it's aimed towards. And so this morning I want to talk to you, have a conversation about what this book, what this Bible says about faith. Probably four things. Um, we're going to talk about what it is, we're going to talk about what it's not, and we're going to talk about what it does. A couple of different things about what faith really does. And to understand what faith is, we, gotta get, we need to get past what it's not. It's not somehow the ability to manipulate God into being Santa Claus. In the world we live in today, especially in the United States, we have, some have tried to turn God into Santa Claus and where the chief aim is to have a life of comfort. 
That's not faith. Faith isn't an obedience to a set of beliefs. If your beliefs aren't founded and grounded on the right person, it doesn't matter what else you may believe. It's not a blind, ignorant leap into the dark, but to most unbelievers, faith is like the antithesis of science. If To those folks, if you said you have to have faith, they would, they would equate that to you better, might as well just throw your brain and your intellect out into the trash can. It's not positive thinking. It's not, uh, a faith is not a hunch that's followed. It's not hoping for the best. It's not just hoping that everything's going to turn out all right. It's not a feeling of optimism. Faith is not even devotion, even if it's sincere devotion, to whatever God you may happen to follow, whoever the, or whatever the God of the day is. You know, you turn on a TV, turn it on when you get home, turn on some news station, and you're going to see an imam, you know, up on the screen, and it's going to say, Imam Boobala Boobala, or whatever his name is, uh, he's a man of faith. Well, what does that mean? He's a man of faith. He can, I can believe in something that's wrong. And so the world is going to tell you that it's faith for the sake of faith, that you can have faith in Muhammad, or you can have faith in the Ayatollah, or you can have faith in Buddha. But if the object of the faith is wrong, it's wrong. Um, faith is none of those things that we talked about, but every one of them has been identified. No, every one of them has been misidentified as faith. So if we've got a little image of what it's not, I want to talk about for a moment what, it, what biblical, true biblical faith is. And, and we're going to look in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Um, don't really know. It's one of the only books in Scripture that we really don't necessarily know who wrote it. Most scholars think Paul did, so I'm going to go with Paul. But he wrote in chapter 11, in the first verse, he said, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Another translation reads, the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. True biblical faith is a confident obedience to the truths of God's word regardless of your circumstances and regardless of the consequences. True biblical faith doesn't care about the circumstances, and I'm not saying that's easy because it's not, but true biblical faith doesn't, doesn't care about the consequences, doesn't care about the circumstances. And so that first word that's translated confidence or substance, in the Greek, it really literally means to stand under, to be a peer, uh, P-I-E-R, peer, to, to gird or to, su- to support. And faith is to the Christian what the slab or what a foundation is to a house. And so the, the evidence of things unseen, the second part, the evidence of things unseen, the conviction of things unseen, faith. Faith is that evidence. Faith will allow you to believe something that you can't see, you can't touch, you can't smell, you can't hear, but you believe it just as much as if you can taste it and touch it and feel it and smell it. It's not a leap in the dark. It's not some just some hope so. It is assurance and conviction. It is, it is substance and evidence. It's substance for the scientific kind of minded person, and it's evidence for the legal sort of minded person. Faith is believing that there's a whole other dimension other than that that can be touched and felt and, and smelled and, and, and tasted. Charles Spurgeon, who was a pastor 175-ish years ago, uh, brilliant guy, incredible uh, pastor and author, he, he said this. 
and I, I, I tried to figure a bunch of different ways to say it, and I can't say it as good as he said it. So we're going to put it up on the screen, and I want to read this to you. Spurgeon said, It is not your hold of Christ that saves you. It's Christ. It's not your joy in Christ that saves you. It's Christ. It's not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It's Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not to your hope, but to Christ the source of hope. Look not to your faith, but to Christ the author and finisher of your faith. And if you do that, 10,000 devils can't even throw you down. There's one thing that we confuse in our preaching, namely the great truth that it's not prayer, it's not faith, it's not doing stuff, it's not our feelings upon which we must trust, but it's upon Christ and Christ alone. And so my second point, my second little issue, is that we're saved by grace through faith. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verses 8 and 9, he wrote, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that it's not a, your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And this is the way my simple brain sort of puts it. And I know this is not theologically, doctrinally accurate. I know that. But it's the way my brain processes stuff. And I look at it like this. Someday, I'm going to be up there, and the angels are going to walk by, and they're going to say, you see that Griffin Hagen dude over there? He was lost in a go- as a goose and going straight to hell, and he wasn't worth saving, but here he is right here today. And it's only through the grace and the loving kindness of God that he was saved and brought here. Romans 5 is going to say, right in the middle of my unlovableness. It's easy to love somebody that's lovable. It is. It's hard to love somebody that is unlovable. So right in the middle of my unlovableness, Romans 5 says, just as I was weak, Christ died for me. Just as I was in the middle of my sinfulness, Christ died for me. He didn't die, he didn't die for me right when I was in the middle of doing a bunch of good stuff. He died for me while, while I was weak and while I was sinful. And it makes no sense. It makes no logical sense. And the song calls it amazing, this grace that Paul talked about in, in Ephesians 2. And I would say, in my sort of way of saying it, that this, it's this crazy, uh, amazing, illogical, shocking, over-the-top grace that saved a wretch like me. Believing faith is the only thing that I bring to the table, if I even bring that to the table. Um, So the only thing for me is to bring my faith to the table. So number two is that we're saved by grace through faith. Number three is that we must walk by faith. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. He said, and he wrote to them because their their walk was jacked up. That letter, those letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, those letters were written, all of Paul's letters, they're written for a purpose. They had an audience. They had an audience, an ancient audience. So those letters in context were written to that church for a reason, and that's because their walk was jacked up. And so Paul wrote to them, and he says in this small, short little verse in chapter 5, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And what he's saying here very simply is that we take God for his word. We trust him because we believe him. Uh, we believe him. We believe that 
that he is who he says he is, and we believe that he can do every single thing that he says he can do, and we trust him, we trust him, and trust and faith in the Greek is the same, same root word. So we trust him by faith because he's trustworthy. He's our father, and he said it, and we can trust that. Thirteen years ago, I was in my office in my house, and, uh, and I was working, and I was working hard, and I was focused. I was laser-focused on what I was doing, and my kids were 10 and 7 at the time, my two sons. And so they walked, they walked in the room, and you all know how it is. You are, you are laser-focused on something, and they bust in the room. Daddy, 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 can we build a treehouse in the backyard? And I said, yeah, yeah, whatever, and I'm just, I was half listening, I'm sure. Susan would say that I was half listening, maybe a quarter listening, I don't know. But they walked in, they said that, I said, yeah, 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 and whatever. And I don't know, 20, 30 minutes later, I'm still hard at work in there, but there's a window on the left side of that wall that opens up to the backyard, and the blinds were open, and I could see all this stuff going on in the backyard, and they were walking, Zach was walking by, and Will's walking by, and they're, they got stuff in their hands, and they're walking, it was bothering me, because it was out of the, I was trying to work, and it was really bothering me. And so I hollered to Susan, I said, I said, what in the world is going on in the backyard? What are Zach and Will doing back there? And, and she, said, she said, they walked in here 30 minutes ago, and they asked you if y'all could build a treehouse. And you said, yes, and guess what? They believed you. She said, when you say something, they believe you because they trust you. And they trusted that I was going to do what I said I was going to do. Why? Because they trusted me. I had not let them down before. They trusted me. Faith bridged that gap. Faith made it real. Faith gave them the confidence, looking back to Hebrews 11.1, faith gave them the confidence and the assurance that what was promised to them would actually become a reality. Faith allows me and you to treat the future as the present and the invisible as the visible. So number three is we're going to walk by faith. Number four, and I want to park on number four because it means a lot to me. Um, And and that is that a fruitless Christian is an impossibility. A loveless Christian is an impossibility. Paul would say that a fruitless Christian is an oxymoron, can't exist. And Jesus said in John chapter 13, in verse 35, he said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have what for one another? If you have love for one another. Then in Romans 13, uh, verse 8, Paul says, Owe no one anything except to what each other? Except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The point is that you cannot say that you are a child of God and live a loveless, fruitless life. You can't. I don't believe it can happen. I got a friend and we're going to call her Ruth. We work together, and she, or we used to work together. <clears throat> and she has a daughter. Her daughter, I think, is about 57 years old now. Her daughter spent about 20 years addicted to crack cocaine. Um, she's, she's 56 or 57 now. She struggled for years with it. I have another friend who at the time was 67 years old. And he got in his, and, and the, the, the young lady, well, the lady that was addicted to crack worked for me at the time and she didn't show up for work one day and her mama called me and said do you know where she is and I said 
no, she didn't show up for work. And she said, I guarantee you she's back on that stuff. She's back on the street. And she'd been clean for about 10 months, maybe. Um, she said, I guarantee you she's back on that stuff. And so this other friend of mine, 67-year-old guy, gets in his car alone, drove through every drug-infested neighborhood in Columbus, Georgia that he could think of, took him about three days. He found her. He went in a crack house, drug her out, put her in a Christian rehab facility down in Mock, Georgia. She's been clean for and he paid for it for a year. He's not related to any of these people. He was a believer who saw a need, and he fulfilled the need, and he paid for her to be there for a year. She's been clean for four years. She lives up in North Georgia, works at, has, a, has a job, works in a real estate office up in North Georgia. Got another friend who is fully supporting an, a, mission, a missionary in Africa. Didn't tell anybody about it. He told me about it because we're going to go as a church. We're going to go to Africa next year on a mission trip. And I was asking him about it, and he told me about it. I got another friend who built two orphanages in Thailand. All, it's, this is all, uh, all out of faith. You know, what you do and what I do every day, your walk, the life that you live, the way that you spend your resources, it is, you can pretend it's not, but it is an indication of your heart. It's an indication of where your heart is. Your works, your works are, are intimately connected to the genuineness of your faith. Paul wrote in Galatians, in chapter 2, verse 16, he wrote that we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He says, you're not justified by works. You're not. You're justified through what? Through faith in Jesus Christ. And in this passage, Paul makes it clear, crystal clear that we're not. We're not saved by works. And then he goes on four chapters later in chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, and says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we'll reap if we don't give up. So then as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone. The, 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 don't grow weary of doing good, that's works. Let us do good to everyone, that's works. It's the same writer, it's Paul, inspired by the Lord, writing in the same book to the same church, the church of Galatia. And, I, and at first I'm thinking there's these two things are in conflict with each other. They're not in conflict with each other. We'll get to that in just a second. There is, in fact, a lot of doing that goes along with believing. There is a lot of doing that goes along with believing. And James wrote in chapter 2, verses 15 through 18, and all of us know the passage in James that faith without works is dead. But we tend sometimes to take things out of context. You want to really, really have the scriptures come up and just explode into life, read them in the context in which they are written. Faith without works is dead. Sure, back up to verse 15, two verses before And let's see what that says. It says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, and in today's world, go in peace, be warmed and filled, is, I'll pray for you, honey. And then you turn around and just go on about your business. So go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that they need for the body. James said, What good is that? So also, and here's that verse, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. You show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Both James and Paul taught that say a saving faith has got to be a working faith. John Calvin put it like this. 
He said, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. Faith alone saves. Works don't save. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never, ever alone out on some island somewhere. Again, there is, in fact, a lot of doing that goes along with believing. Fancy theology words, prayers that go on and on and on and on and on and on are not evidence of saving faith. There's got to be work that goes along with that vocabulary. You can be all holy and say to your brother or sister in need, I'll pray for you. You just go on and be warm and go in peace. And that don't get it. And don't go out of here and say, Pastor said we're not supposed to pray. That is not what I'm saying, and that is not what James is saying. What I'm saying is this. Your path crosses a path with someone in need. It ain't a coincidence. What I'm saying is that the Lord put you there in a particular place at a particular time as one of his children to do some providing. And I don't know what the providing is, but you are not, whatever that situation is, it didn't happen by accident. There is absolutely no such thing as coincidence. And so one of the more stunning statements in Scripture is Jesus' description in Mark 10, verse 45, of why he came. And this is what Mark said in chapter 10. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He did not come to, to, to be served, he came to serve. And as this verse describes the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, he enters into his very own creation not to be served, but to serve. In Philippians chapter 2, in verse 7, we read that he made himself nothing. God made himself nothing. Another translation says he emptied himself. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a what? Of a servant. Jesus could have made demands. He could have revealed his position and flexed his authority. Of course he could. But the ne- very next verse in Philippians 2, in verse 8, it says that he became obedient, obedient to death, to death even on a cross. Why in the world? What would motivate the creator of everything to come and serve the creation? What I mean, what, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. But we can get a glimmer of understanding if you look at it this way. If you consider the circumstances. You jump into any tragic situation. You're driving down the road and there's a multi-car pileup. You're not going to get out and start asking somebody to serve you. You're going to get out and call an ambulance. You're going to call the police. You're going to call the fire truck. You're going to start uh, bandaging up wounds. You know, you're going to comfort the people that are in distress. And it's pretty revealing that the very Son of God took the approach that he did in this world. And all indicators are this, that from his vantage point, from God's vantage point, from Jesus' vantage point, we do live in one big round world that's one gigantic multi-car pileup. We don't really see that necessarily from our vantage point. All too often, we walk right by the tragedies. We don't see them. We, we just don't see them. I promise you that they're there. I promise you they're there. And the people that we lock eyes with every day of the week are hurting. You may not know that. You may not see it. They may not even look like it. Life is not Facebook. 
when you lock eyes with somebody, you don't know the pain and what's going on in their lives. Jesus made his purpose really very clear in Luke chapter 4. And it says that he came to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and to set the oppressed free. Those who follow Christ will do just that. We'll be freedom fighters. We'll be liberators. We'll be healers. We will look and seek out and look for places to serve. We'll look to the people around us to serve both physically, uh, the physical needs and, and spiritual needs. And we won't be consumed with our own prestige or our own pats on the back or our own, maybe even our own power, we'll have the same mindset that Christ had. From, the, from his earliest followers to him, to he himself, we have the example of those who served by doing two things, by proclaim, proclaiming the deepest of spiritual truths and by giving in the very most practical ways ever. You and I are part of a local body of believers that is called my church. And I've only been a Christian for 13 or 14 years, but I've never seen or been in a church quite like this one. I've never seen a church that was more authentic than this one. I've never seen a church where you don't feel compelled to leave your junk at the front door the way you do at my church. I've never seen a church where the leadership leads with such a limp but does not try to hide that limp. I've never seen a church where truly, truly, truly no perfect people are allowed. I've never seen a church where the number of people that are on the fence that are really searching and seeking for truth and trying to find a way back to God where the number of people is so ginormous. This church is playing a major, major role in helping people with radical, radical life change. One of the many things that we do around here is to serve the homeless community through a ministry called M2540, which is Matthew chapter 2540. Whatever you did for the least of my brothers and sisters, you did for me. The mission of M2540 is to minister to the spiritual and the physical needs of the homeless community where they are in our area. And by where they are, I mean under the bridges on the railroad tracks, in the woods on 2nd Avenue, in the woods on 3rd Avenue, in the woods on J.R. Allen, in the woods on Chautauqua Road, wherever they are. Don't care where they are. We're going to wherever it is that they are. And here's what, what, what we do and what we provide is an ear, a shoulder to, to, to lean on, prayer, love, hugs, friendship, relationship, food, toiletries, blankets, all the necessities that you and I absolutely take for granted every day of the week. We're providing, what did I say a minute ago? What did Jesus do? What did he say? What did he do? What did his disciples do? They provided spiritual needs. They provided to the physical needs, practical things. Little things you don't think about. In the wintertime, chapstick is like gold. In the summertime, bug spray is like gold. I mean bug spray is sure enough like gold. And the volunteers that cook, the street teams that serve in the field, the prayer teams that serve on Monday nights it's from 7 to 9 and Tuesday nights from 7 to 9, somebody on a prayer team 
for that two-hour period is praying for the street teams and the homeless community that we're serving. The whole thing is bathed in prayer. So the people on the street teams, the people on the prayer teams, the people that are cooking, the people that offer financial support, all of these people give and they serve out of love because Christ served first. I want you all to meet a friend of mine, Brian. Brian lives, that is, uh, you can dim the lights just a hair. Brian, if you all can see it, that's underneath the Dillingham Street Bridge down by the, uh, down by the Trade Center. And that's where Brian lives, probably 50 yards from the, from the actual, from the river. Um, that was about six weeks ago. It was about 22 degrees outside, about 10 o'clock at night, 8.30, 9.30, something like that. What, what you can see that Brian's got there, that white thing is a sheet. It's not a blanket. It's a sheet. It's all he had. And I walked down there. Brian's 66 years old. Brian's got prostate cancer. And that's where Brian lives. And... I go down there, and I said, dude, we call him Pops. I said, Pops, it's 20 degrees, and you got a sheet on top of you. I got two blankets. We were out of sleeping bags. I got two blankets. I said, let me put a blanket on you. He said, no, I'm okay. I said, you're not okay. You're going to freeze to death. It's 20 degrees outside. And he said, well, put one blanket on me, and I'll keep the other one in case someone who's really in need comes by. I mean, think about that. Living under that bridge with him, two other people, uh, and I don't have a picture of them, Sherelle and Wilbert. Wilbert's about 40 years old. Sherelle is uh, about 19. Sherelle is Wilbert's niece. They're not related to Brian, but the three of them stay there together. And about Monday before last, uh, Wilbert was, and Wilbert and Sherelle are out every day looking for work, looking for day jobs, looking for a permanent job. Jobs are not easy to come by. They're looking for stuff. And they're doing whatever they can do. They're, they don't do drugs. They don't drink. They're sweet people. And they're both believers. Actually, Brian is a believer too. Anyway, um, Monday before last, Wilbert was really depressed. He said, he said Ed, he said, I'm, this is not me. I've never, I lived 38 years of my life not like this. And, and this is just not me. We got, I got to do, do something to get off the streets. And I got to do something to get my niece off the streets. And we, we just got in a little huddle and we had our arms around each other and we prayed for, I don't know, five minutes. I don't even know what it was, but we prayed hard about a job. We, we prayed hard that, that somehow they would stay warm because that day somebody had stolen all their stuff. How do you steal stuff from somebody that ain't got nothing to steal? Anyway, that, that was a rabbit just went by. But, but we're praying for a job and that was Monday before last. Well, this Monday, this six days ago Monday, um, uh, we were down there. Excuse me, we were down there Tuesday. But on Monday, somehow, just happens that Wilbert was over in Phoenix City and his path just crossed with a guy who worked construction who, it just so happened, lost his backhoe operator the day before. And it just so happened that Wilbert has a heavy equipment license And what he did for 15 years was drive a backhoe. So it just so happens that on Wednesday, Wilbert started a job 35 hours a week making $15 an hour driving a backhoe in Phoenix City. And and it just so happened. I mean, mean, what a crock. It didn't just so happen. Every God ordained every bit of that. And it happened just six days ago. 
Many of y'all have seen Big Country uh, here around because uh, he's been, he's not here today, but he's been here multiple times. This is Big Country. He gets that name for a reason. That picture probably doesn't do him any justice, but he's a big dude. He's about 6'5 and about 285 uh, on the scales. When we met Big Country, we met him down at the Riverwalk in a pavilion behind the Homeless Resource Network on 2nd Avenue. They've shut that pavilion down now, but that's where we met him. His wife had put him out of the house, and Big Country was an angry, angry, angry guy. And he's big. I mean, he's big. He was big and angry. And, uh, and as a matter of fact, the first night that we met them, we were standing there, and my wife, who is about this, she's about that tall, um, weighs about 100 pounds, is walked up, and two or three of us were talking to country, and, and she walked up. Um, no, somebody else walked up. And when they walked up, she kind of backed a little bit out of the way to let them in the circle because that's just what people do. And country turned around, looked down at Susan and said, what do you think, a black man's going to take your purse? He was an angry, angry, angry guy. But over time, he softened and has softened in the last six months. And he softened because we developed a relationship with him. He softened because we loved on him. In his unlovableness, we loved on him. Why did we do that? Because that's what Christ did. Um, right in the middle of him being mean, we gave him food. We gave him, uh, we gave him blankets and, and sleeping bags and the necessities of life because he had not been homeless either. You know, he was, this was like in September, and he had only been on the streets about three weeks. Um, but he may not admit it. He very well may not admit it, but he saw sometime in there a little light at the end of the tunnel. And you can see that he is a big dude. And that brother can eat. And, if, and In fact, three or four weeks ago, I was taking him home from church, and he said, I want to go buy Burger King. And if y'all don't know what it's like to spend 17 bucks for one person's meal, take him to lunch with you. He ate, it's a true story, he ate two triple Whopper with cheese meals, I mean, I don't know, that's like 47,000 calories. Two Whopper, two triple Whopper with cheese meals, an extra large fry, and a milkshake, and a Coke. But here's the deal. Big Country, that's him moving into his apartment about three weeks ago. He ain't on the streets anymore. And I'm pretty sure in the next 10 or 12 days, he's going to have a job. And it all began with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It all began with a hug. It all began with listening to what's going on in another human being's life. It, it, it all began just with loving on somebody. I want to show you uh, the last guy I want to talk about. His name is Eugene. We met Eugene last March on a ledge, the old Burnham building on 3rd Avenue and about 18th Street. That's where he lived on like a loading dock. Eugene probably is the meanest nastiest, orneriest person I've ever met in my, or was, that I ever met in my entire life. Early in the fall, we're down there and we hadn't seen him in a couple of weeks and I asked T. T is another guy that lives on that loading dock. I said, T, where's Eugene? He said, he's over there in the corner. It's about 10 o'clock at night. I said, he's over there in the corner or T said he's over there in the corner and his leg is jacked up. You need to go look at his leg. And so I go over there to check him out. Uh, and I looked, I kind of pulled his uh, 
his pants leg up, and dude, his dude, his leg was messed up. Any of y'all seen Joe Theismann break his leg in that football game? He didn't have nothing on the way Eugene's leg looked. But it just so happened that Dewan, who uh, comes to my church, Dewan Jacklett, who just so happened, it was her first night with us. It just so happened that was her first night. It just so happened that she works for Lee McCluskey, who's one of the best orthopedic surgeons in Columbus, who just so happens to be a believer, who just so happens to do medical mission work. It just so happened all that stuff happened that night. So Dewan, at 10 o'clock at night, takes a picture of Eugene's mangled-up-looking leg and texts it to Lee, and Lee says, get him in my office first thing in the morning, and I don't care what I've got going on, I'll take care of it. So the next morning... Me and Hannah, who is the young lady on the right, uh, who's the kindest, sweetest young girl, she and I went down there to pick Eugene up, and I mean literally pick him up. We picked him up off of, and he had been laying there and not moved for three days. Picked him up, and when I picked him up, his leg just kind of did that, and I was like, oh, my God, this is sick. And we put him in the car. We take him to go see Lee that next morning, and Lee said, I need to find out, and we got him x-ray Dewan did the x-ray and his leg the two bones in his leg were like that and uh and so Lee said it looked like it had started to heal I need to know when did it happen he looked at me said Ed find out when it happened and what happened and so I say to Eugene I said brother what when and what happened and he said they in the park which is the water park downtown he said they hit me with a stick and I said Eugene I've seen the x-rays they hit you with a tree there's no way a stick did that to your leg. He said, no, you, no, a stickball stick. I said, a baseball bat? He said, yeah, you know, it was silver and shiny. Somebody had beat his leg with an aluminum baseball bat not one week ago, not two weeks ago, but three weeks ago, he'd been dragging that leg around for three weeks. So Lee operated on him the next morning, put two, two uh, rods, steel rods in his leg, and Eugene was just as mean and just as ornery and just as hateful and nasty when he came out of uh, the hospital. He was there about three or four days. And we got him in a place called the Grace House on Kolb Avenue, which is a wonderful ministry for men. He wouldn't let the home health nurse come check him out, change the dressing, he, you know, the dressing on his leg. He wouldn't let him change the cast thing. He wouldn't let him clean it. He wouldn't, do, he wouldn't let him do anything. So about 35 days later in November, what you reckon happened to that leg? He got gangrene. And so Lee had to go back in and remove that leg about, well, you can see it in the picture, um, remove that leg about, about right there. Then when he got out of the hospital, he went to a nursing facility up in Waverly Hall, a nursing home up in Waverly Hall. And I don't know when it happened. I don't know where it happened. I don't know how it happened. But something happened to Eugene. And something is someone, and the someone is Jesus Christ. He is still ornery, but this is probably not a right word, but there's a joyful orneriness about him. That look on his face right there, that's a smile for Eugene. I don't know if you can tell, that's a smile. I promise you that's a smile. There's, you come out different on the other side when you have an encounter with living God. And Eugene has got joy in his life now. Just this last Tuesday night, five days ago, we're down at that, at that ledge area, 
And we were in a circle praying, or we were fixing to pray because we had just passed out some food and one of the guys, and we usually always will pray over the food. And one of the guys said he wanted to pray. His name is Mike. That's a picture of him on his knees right there praying. And we're in a circle. And it was so cool because that picture was taken. Somebody that was in the circle had their camera like this, and they just started clicking. And that's what came out. Um, but here, here's what Mike prayed. He's, this guy that was praying has been homeless on the streets for 10 years. Okay? 10 years he's been homeless through our summers and through our winters. And he gets on his knees and he's talking about how good God is. He's, t- he's praying for us. He's praying for the volunteers. He's asking God to bless the volunteers. And he's talking because, because the volunteers are giving, them, giving up their time to be down there serving them. He's talking about, he went on and on about how good God is. That would be faith. And I'm telling you, nothing, and I mean nothing, will strengthen your faith and deliver massive, authentic spiritual growth like serving another human being. I have a friend who's a very successful business person in Columbus, 20 years ago was suffering from clinical depression, really depressed, dealing with a, a, a counselor at the Pastoral Institute. He ended up going to the Bradley Center for about 30 days, 30 or 40 days. On day one, his counselor said, when you get your chin off your chest, you'll start to recover. And that just ticked him off. Three, four days later, he said, his counselor said, when you get your chin off your chest, you'll start to recover. About four or five days later, his, the counselor walked over to him and he put his finger right here and he did that because here's the deal. Who am I looking at when I'm like this? I'm looking at myself. But if I do that, I'm looking at another human being. And my buddy did that. It took him about eight or nine days for the, for the counselor to get his chin off his chest, and he started helping. He started talking to, he started hugging on a 68-year-old lady who was there because she had an oxycodone addiction. And my buddy ministered to her. He's a believer then, my, my friend was. He started ministering to her and talking to her and hugging on her and loving on her because he got his chin off his chest. True biblical faith and love are going to drive us to do the remarkable. We'll give money. We'll give time. We'll give our thoughts. We'll give our attention. We'll give our hearts. If you really want to see your faith grow, and I mean explode, trust the Lord with your finances. Trust the Lord with your time. Trust the Lord with your service. This is not a money issue at all. This is a faith issue. This is a trust issue. And I'm not saying it's easy either to trust Him with everything. It very well may not be, especially with your money and your time, because with your money and your time, they're precious to you. You, you kind of guard them. You put them in your, in your little pocket right there, and, and, and you just kind of guard them. However, real, true growth will happen like you cannot even believe when you just give all of that over to him. So here's my ask today. If you're on the fence, if you are testing out God, if you are saying, I'm not really sure if he's real or not, faith, and for some it's, it's this big, and for some it's this big, for some the fence is this wide, and for some the fence is this wide, but faith is what will make him as real as looking at your hand in front of your face. So my ask is consider, just consider believing. That video we saw right at the very beginning, I believe in you. Just, just that that faith.
let faith bridge the gap and make him real. And if you are a Christ follower, here is my ask. Get your chin off your chest and serve. I don't understand how it works. I I really don't. I, I have no idea. But I watched my own personal walk and my wife's walk and Alex and Julia who come to my church, Dewan, I've watched their faith explode because they were serving another human being. So here's what I'm going to say. Surrender your time. Surrender your life. Trust Him with your family. Trust Him with your service. And, tr- and yet, trust Him with your dollars too because there's a tie between your heart and all of your resources. So y'all pray, pray with me. Lord, we love you today. We come to you broken and fallen and sinful, and we live in a broken and fallen sinful world that will tell us that faith, just for the sake of faith, is real. It's not. Faith in Jesus Christ is real. Faith in the cross is real. And, and, and Father, I pray for the people in our body that are, that are on that fence, that they'll take a little step of faith, put their, their toe a little bit in the water, and just believe, and just believe in you. And Father, I pray that hearts will be pricked this morning, that that people will get their chin off their chest and serve another human being. And Father, I lift this up to you in Jesus' name. And so now we come to the time in our service where where we worship through a tithe. And if you're a guest, be a guest. Don't expect you to do anything other than maybe put the connection card in that little bucket so we'll know that you're here. Um, But those of us that call my church home and have trusted the Lord with, uh, with their finances, this is the time. And that's true worship as well when we worship him with that. So let me pray over that, and then the band will lead us in a, in a last song. Father, we pray for uh, the resources uh, that people so generously give. Lord, we know that you don't need this money. Lord, it takes, we know that we need financial resources to, to, to run the ministries that we run, but you don't need it. You need our trust and you need our faith. And Lord, we know that we know and we trust that, that you will take these resources and you'll double them and triple them and quadruple them all to do your kingdom work. In Jesus' name, amen.